Well, good morning. Uh, what do you say, right? 2021, here she is. And we got no idea what to expect, right? If there's anything that we've found ourselves in with uh, lessons of 2020, it's that we really got no idea what's coming. And, and that's okay. Uh, but I, I figured that what I'd like to do in these first couple of weeks of our time together in 2021 is uh, really get a chance to, to, to put a, a microscope or, or magnify some of the ambient noise that goes on inside of our lives where we, we're not as attuned to. And I think often it, it, it becomes a place where uh, it, it zaps our joy or, or finds us misunderstanding ourselves, certainly misrepresenting the work that God is doing, and, and just lends itself to a little bit of confusion. And that's why we've started this series on, on identity. So uh, how many of you guys decided to go out in your backyards on December 20th, I think it was, and look at the Christmas star, or what was deemed the Christmas star? Yeah, we did. We went outside as a family, and we decided to, to you know, we, we turned to the west, looked over just over our, our neighbor's houses, and and, and if it was anything like my experience, what did you see? Two dots, right? I mean, it was like, wow, Christmas star, cool. So I thought, well, I wonder, I mean, certainly with the naked eye, you can only see so much. And so, you know, Jupiter and Saturn kind of coming to, together and they're sort of close. And you're thinking, yeah, if I squint, maybe it looks like a star. I mean, it's glowing. It's certainly unique. Hasn't been seen in 800 years. Cool. But then I thought, well, I wonder if there's any other sort of really neat pictures of this Christmas star. Maybe the Hubble telescope took one. And so sure, sure enough, you get online, and, and apparently it was all false because there wasn't really. The Hubble telescope didn't take pictures of this, I guess, or at least what I saw, where it looked like the Bethlehem star, and it was all perfect, and everybody's like, oh, that's cool. And they're like, oh, that's not really true. But in the process of that, I started to look through pictures that the Hubble telescope had taken amazing pictures of just kind of stuff in deep space that to our naked eye, we would, we would never be able to see. Only, only glimpses, only shadows, this sort of distant ambient light way off in the distance. And we can't really tell the details of what's there. So here's a couple pictures of the Hubble telescope. One, the first one is of, of Neptune, I guess. It's a, it's a picture that the, the telescope had... No, that's Saturn, so that's not the first one. But you can tell I'm really good at astronomy. I'm just really good at this stuff. But yeah, so that's just a picture where, you know, you could see some of those things in the very distance. And maybe you could, with your binoculars or telescope, you could catch the rings, but you couldn't really see the fullness. And then this is another picture of, of just a star that had exploded, that had been caught by the Hubble telescope. Stuff that you would never be able to see with the naked eye, but exists in our reality out there. It's just, it's, it's, it's truth. It's, it's those things are happening, but, but we in, in and of ourselves can't see it unless we're actually focused with a very powerful telescope magnifying the things that are really going on. And that's what I want to do when we, come, we have this conversation about identity, is that there's a lot of us, if, and I think all of us in some parts, have this ambient noise that's going on in the context of our lives. Sundays feels different than Mondays in the sense that we would come in and we would hear the truth of God's word and we'd want to grow in our understanding of him and even our, our identity of, of who we are. We'd want to see things accurately. There's a, there's a space disconnected from the normal daily details of the world. But then we jump back in on Monday and that, that ambient noise behind us gets louder. 
So what I mean is that often we look at our lives and we hear these things about who we are and internalize them as though they're accurate and real. Here's what I mean. Many of us have interacted with people and and we have given them or even others have given us an identity. Oh, he's just high strung. She's just anxious. He tends to be really intense. Or he's just one of those funny, comical guys. And, and that becomes sort of the identity that we internalize based on other people's perception. And so there's a level of wanting to maintain that because it's how people interact with us. But that's not it, right? There's other places. Oh, he struggles with alcohol. Or this is his signature sin. And that becomes part of an identity or even some health issues. Yeah, she's a cancer survivor, or she's struggling with this malady or this illness. And and that becomes a place where we step into an identity. And so it's this ambient noise behind us where what ends up happening is we grow somewhat confused if we were to ask ourselves the question, who are you really? And, And how would you even know or begin to answer that question divorced from what you experience, what you feel, what others think, what somebody once said, what your parents told you that you are, any of those contexts, it's as though we we find ourselves kind of grasping in this, this pool of confusion about what does it really mean to even begin to answer that question. And so we're going to kind of Hubble telescope that ambient noise these next two weeks. We're going to look into the reality of all of those things around us that have been somewhat influential in terms of identifying who we really are, and then in the context of that, parse out the the truth of what God really says, and in the process of that, then have that ambient noise be influenced by truth rather than that ambient noise influence truth. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the struggle is that there are so many things competing for our understanding of who God is and who we are that so much gets lost, dismissed, or displaced by just life itself. And so in moving towards 2021, one of the things that I think is just so essential is that we want to we drill down into the truth of what really is true rather than live these sort of shadowed lives where we only see parts and glimpses like looking in our backyards at the Christmas store. You can only see it from a distance and you're hoping that what everybody says is happening is actually true that this hasn't happened in 800 years and that this is some huge astronomical event and how, how cool. I, we, we so often just tend to, to buy in, if you will, to a narrative and a story about what others say about us versus really starting from the standpoint of dealing with what God has said about us and how that affects all of the things that surround us. And so there's this sense in which what I'm really hoping is that we penetrate that bubble, that undercurrent of a false identity or even a a misperception or misconception of who God is and what he does because we've all been there. Any one of us have navigated suffering and dealt with an enormous challenge that we have a hard time processing. 
and our minds go to what possibly could God be doing? Is this a result of my sin? Am I being punished in some way because of something that I'm navigating, some hurt or hardship or habit? Is it because I'm not a better person that God is not meeting me where I'm at? Is it true what others say about me, or do they really have an accurate assessment? Do they really know me? Do do I really know me? And how would I know me if where do I even start? That's the beginning of the discussion of these next two weeks on identity. I guess we could have even called the sermon series Reminders. Reminder one and reminder two. So this week is just kind of setting the basis for which we can even begin to have the discussion. If you'll allow me to carry the illustration a little bit further, this is adjusting this telescope so that we can see what seems to be cloudy and unclear and we can bring it into focus. First Peter chapter two is where we're going to kind of launch from this morning. Peter's writing to a group of people that have been dispersed. They're all over the place. There's a level of, of a lack of, uh, there's a level of disconnection, uh, a desire for community and relationships that has been taken from them. There's some level of apprehension, if you will, about the world around them. Circumstances are such that they're calling into question who they are and who they should be. And so Peter decides to, to be, in, or he's inspired by God to communicate a reality that serves as a reminder so that the things that they have known or have been taught come into clear focus, not so that they can just be able to communicate truth, but ultimately, if we really allow that ambient noise to come into focus, what's really supposed to happen is that our lives grow and begin to be changed because we're seeing what God sees, and those things that are not of God become uh, isolated or, or moving away from our experience so that we can actually live in such a way that we're experiencing who God and who Christ has deemed us to be as his people. And that actually has an effect in how we respond to the things around us. So the goal, the prayer these last few weeks as we've moved into this and ultimately I've kind of planned this series over the last four or five months, and it'll become clear towards the end of the sermon as to why. But there's just that place of realizing that many of us, in multiple conversations, have sat together, and we've wrestled with some of the most difficult issues of life. You've talked to friends and family. You've been in home groups and with people where you've navigated some of the most uncertain, difficult times, whether it's sin done to you, sin you've done, suffering you're experiencing, suffering you might have to experience. All of those things have been the conversation over the last years, if you will. And yet we still find ourselves needing to be drawn back into a truth about understanding the work that God is doing and not misrepresenting his character when times get hard. So not not allowing that telescope and that ambient noise to become out of focus, but truly focusing it with the truth of God's word. So let me, let me tell you, let me, let me read 1 Peter chapter 2 as we get there, uh, and it'll begin to make more sense as we walk through it. It's just going to be verses 1 through 12. But here, here's Peter as he communicates these things, and he, he starts off with very practical stuff because he knows that the result of suffering and difficulty and misperceptions of God is 
is it comes to the place of anger and deception and confusion tend to be the result of, of allowing that ambient noise to be louder. So here's what he says in verse 1. He says, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone, a laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The, they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, Peter says, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, they, uh, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." You can see that Peter's really developing steam as he starts to, to uh, identify for them some of the core elements of what he wants them to know. There's a quote by a, a Christian author who says this, Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. So it's this place of realizing that part of what gets examined or magnified as we look at the ambient noise in our lives is that often I think we're listening to so many things that become directive in terms of how we live this world. There's a level of maintenance that we take in so many relationships around us that we want to maintain a level of a perception or an identity that we want to be real, and yet at its core, so often we're, we're hearing things and seeing things and not dealing with things that create a level of inaccuracy in our understanding of ourselves and of God. In the Valley of Vision prayers, one Puritan says it this way, help me to honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is the sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Now, how often has that been part of our dilemma? I mean, part of our journey, right? I don't, I don't know if you're anything like me, but, but often in the midst of life, my feelings can be fairly big, so big that they seem more real than anything else around me. That whether it's a, a hunger or an appetite or a perception or a desire or a thought, I can be so convinced 
that that feeling is 100% accurate, that I miss seeing the truth because I'm unwilling to lay that feeling down. Been your experience? Certainly been mine. That so often we make feelings the cause of faith. And so what do we say to ourselves in times of challenge and difficulty? I don't feel close to God. And, and that certainly has been my experience over the last few weeks. It's not true, though. Right? There's blanketly, it's a crippling lie. Because we know from God's Word as creator and fashioner of the universe, He's in every nook and cranny of the world. And he tells us that he draws close even as we look in the Gospel of Matthew and we hear the Beatitudes. How does he start? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Right? There's just this sense in which this intimate connection and presence and pursuit of God as he moves towards his people in the midst of challenge. And yet so often our feelings convince us that God grows distant when things are hard. You see how it gets all muddled and confusing in our own expression? And now our worship is affected, our relationships with others are affected, we carry around an offense, we wonder about what God could possibly be doing. At the end of the day, we, who we are at its very core is based on what God has done and said. Now, maybe that seems overly simplistic, but what I mean is that feelings are not foundational. They're not the core by which we live. They are certainly the, not the most accurate assessment of reality. Now, they're real. They feel big. One counselor said, your feelings are real. They're just not reliable. And I think that that's true. There's that sense in which it's not as though we're trying to minimize the hurts and the hang-ups and the struggles and all of the things that we're facing We're just trying to communicate with as much truth as we can that they're not an accurate assessment of the way things really are. That Hubble telescope has been out of focus and the ambient noise of our lives has become more directive than God's word itself. So we move back and we say to ourselves, okay, at its core, if we just started with a blank slate from the very foundation of all things, who we are, is based on what God has said and done. That means our identity and what we become and what we are becoming is given to us by God, not something we discover. It's something that we have and receive as a gift, and we're going to unpackage what that means in terms of who we are before God, but there's that essence, that sense that God is the one who deems our identity. Our purpose, our value, our significance, the substance of who we are, our giftings, our purpose, all of those components are directed towards us from God himself. Why? Because he's the fashioner and creator. So if it's true that God has created the entire universe from every little molecule to the very air we breathe to you who sit here this morning, then the God who has fashioned you has every right to decide and direct who you are. He created you for a purpose. Now, that purpose is ultimately going to lead to his glory. But if that's the truth, then the very basis for which we understand ourselves has to come from the standpoint of what God says. Amen? 
It's a core reality of just beginning to compete against all of those other things that we listen to, right? I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. I've done this. I, 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 there's all this sin in my life. How can I ever experience all of these things or I'm suffering? I'm str- Whatever it is, all of those things need to be put in this place in its proper place. And that proper place is under the authority and headship of God himself. And so what does he tell us in 1 Peter? He tells us that not only are we putting away things, right, in the midst of the circumstances that can generate a level of misrepresentation of God and frustration, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, slander, all results of the fact that these individuals who were all disconnected are responding to the circumstances around them in a way that misrepresents and misunderstands who God is. And then he says, like newborn infants who are completely and totally dependent on their parents. Right? He uses that illustration very intentionally that you and I would know part of the ability to understand our identity is the reality of dependence upon God himself. So we come to God as newborn infants, longing for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. And then he says this really unique caveat, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So maybe that's the fundamental question that we face. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? We've seen pockets and snapshots. We'd look back on our lives and we'd say throughout our journey, there's been moments where I've felt the goodness of God. It's more than that. Peter is asking the very fundamental question. Do you and I see the character of God for what it is? Is God good? And the answer to that question then fundamentally directs how we listen and what we see around us. Because that then serves as the premise for which we interact with the very world that he's created and with one another. Have you tasted? Have you ingested the truth of the goodness of God in such a way that it becomes so influential in every aspect of your life that the ambient noise around you about everybody telling you who you are or who you should be or what they think they want you to be becomes drowned out and displaced by the knowledge that God is good. It's fundamentally heart-changing if we allow that truth to set up residence inside of our lives. I'm going to betray my age a little bit here, but anybody play the game of life? Anybody? I mean, I don't mean like just kind of illustratively, there's actually a game for those who are young. I mean, my kids have played it. It's called Life. A little spinner. You go around, and it tells you how many spots you can go. And, and there's some, you know, you get, to, you get to pick a card and choose what you want to do with your life, right? And, and those cards are you can be a teacher or a doctor and you can make all this money or you can be a, I don't know, a, a sanitation worker in there or something. There's some sort of things in life. But you know what cards aren't in there? Unemployed. Homeless right? You, you, don't, you don't have the really bad stuff in the game of life, right? As you move forward, the, the craziest part about it is the expenses that you have to go through. So you pull this card or whatever, and you're like, you had triplets, and it's going to mean thousands of dollars. And you're like, triplets, I'm going to put all these triplets in the back of my little plastic car, and we're going to try and be a family. But it, it never gives the really bad stuff, right? It never deals with the, the, the challenges and the reality of life. It's just sometimes some of the practical hardships of life 
but never really the enormous places of grief. And it's just a game. It's a fun game. And you play and you hope that you win and you get there first with the most money. I wonder how much that feels like what we really play now in real life. What's the goal? What's the vision as we have this world spinning around and we slowly and surely move forward? If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what's the end game? Like what, what's, what's the hope? Or is our identity based on our achievements that we, we made it through this world with the, the American dream, a white picket fence and two and a half kids? I don't know how you get a half a kid, but two and a half kids and, and you, you got money in your bank account and an IRA and you're able to retire and somehow in some way you're able to just, what? I mean, that's where Peter begins to draw us to is, is that the, this truth about the goodness of God and the reality of who he is impacts every area of our life. And so he tells us who Jesus is in verses kind of four through six. And he says he's a living stone who was rejected. And so again, we're getting this knowledge that is Jesus not only entered this world as the second person of the Trinity, God in human form, there was a level of emptiness and difficulty that he faced in this life. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And look what he says in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now he gives us the, the purpose clause of all of these things. He's telling us that essence precedes existence. Wow, there'd be a theological concept there. I know your lives are changed. Let's just move on. No, but what, what he's telling us is that who God has created us to be and the work that he's doing in us is what's determinative. It's not that our existence precedes our essence, meaning that somehow in some way we get to self-determine. We get to just decide, live your best life now, be your best self. Figure out what your deepest joys are and, and hope that it all works out in the end because you can pursue happiness and ultimately find it. It's a lie. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the illusion that exists within the ambient noise of all of those things is that you can be enough in and of yourself until you meet hardship, difficulty, suffering, betrayal, and difficulty. When that happens, it just doesn't feel like enough does it? And that's why there's a purpose in what Peter gives us in these things. He's telling us that we're, we're being built up. There's a royal priesthood that you, as those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, function as priests. You represent God to man and man to God. You have been deemed as that which has infinite value to represent and be an ambassador to the king of the universe and the creator of the world. How is that not such an enormous identifying reality as we walk out our lives? It directs our attention and helps us understand the impact of what we are. We are children of God. His and not only have we been united with this family that he's given us through the death and resurrection of Christ and through our belief and faith in him,
But now we've been mobilized and marshaled to be representatives of him in the world. The voice of God bringing into focus the truth of who we really are. I think there's a, it's a fake story, but there's an anecdotal story about a, uh, a cannibal who lived in some kind of southeastern islands and was sitting there one day with this huge big, big black pot reading the Bible. An archaeologist had showed up with his typical archaeology hat and, and said, what are you doing? Cannibal said, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. So, well, don't you realize that we as scientists and archaeologists have decided that that's all false and just a bunch of lies and it's not worth reading? And he said, sir, if I wasn't reading the Bible, you'd be in the pot. <laughs> That, that fundamentally there's a reality that that's true, right? That, that what we're encountering is that God is the author of change and that there are aspects of our lives and, and our expressions and experience within this world where we have to admit we need to be changed. And sometimes we don't know the spaces. We're blind to that reality of what that is. But there is a sense in which we need to be altered and changed so that our identity grows in who God says we are. So that's what he tells us in these last few verses. I'm just going to fast track a little bit down to verse 9 through 12. And, and it may, I don't know if you, have, if you bracket your Bible or if you, you write in it at all, but I would certainly love for this to be something that begins to direct your attention for 2021. Here's what God says. And, and when God says it, it's, it's, it's not just a truth He's communicating about an identity. He's communicating about who he is and who you are in relation to what he says. You are chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of his own possessions, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? All the work is God's. He called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, uh, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mer- mercy. It, it alters everything. Beloved, here's what he tells us. I urge you as sojourners, refugees, people that no longer fit in the world, and exiles to abstain from the passages of the flesh which war against the soul. All of those passions, all of that ambient noise that is telling us about who we are and, and allowing our struggles to define our destiny. It's not what he says. He says those things we just want to abstain from and keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a couple of places that I just want to finish at, but what I'd like for us to think about is that the deepest struggle we face, the deepest struggles we face, are rooted in a crippling lie. And that crippling lie is that you have what you need to do what you want. Apart from God, apart from that identity that somehow in some way we are contained in our own perceptions of who we are based on what others say of us, based on our own sin struggles, based on any of those pieces, that our identity comes from ourselves and not from God above. Galatians 2.20 is the place that I go to frequently. For I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, dead people don't get 
uh, promoted based on achievements, and dead people don't earn demerits. God himself is the one who is alive within us. And so it's that identity that we are, we are Christ. We, we are in Christ. And because he is in us, we have that innate value that we've been deemed through by our creator. We are his. He calls us his children through the scriptures. He calls us his beloved. Now he called us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The question that faces us in this week and even next is how come that doesn't matter so much? I mean, I think it does intellectually. But, but when it really gets down deep, it, it pushes against our own self-autonomy. It moves us away from ourselves, realizing that who we are is based on solely what God has done, which inevitably frees us from feeling like we have to maintain everything. But at the end of the day, sometimes we're so drawn back into that ambient noise of who we think we are based on our sins, our struggles, what others say of us. And so we find ourselves rerouting our ideas that our existence precedes our essence, when in reality, our essence precedes our existence. That who God said we are is what affects that, those, those things around us rather than vice versa. I've tried to wrestle with this in numerous ways about how, I think we all struggle with this. And, and I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to know how best we can internalize the truth. I think it's going to be a perpetual struggle when we wrestle with our identity. But I, I've always, you know, what, what creative ways are there ways in which we can funnel this truth into our lives in such a way that it's like this open water spigot that is just consistently pouring over us so we just, we can hear and know the reality and the truth of what God says of us. Months ago, probably even upwards of six months ago, maybe just before COVID, BC, before COVID. Um, there's a, I've been working on this because there's many of us that have met together and partnered through life and just wrestled with a lot of things. And, and at its core, it's been this issue of identity. Who, who am I apart from just the things that have happened to me? And so I'm not normally the most creative person in the world. I'm thankful that God has placed people around me that have been incredibly helpful but we, we put together uh, this, what, what we would call presumably a, a spoken word. And, and the title that had come is just, what's, what's in a name? In, in the conclusion of this sermon, and probably at the beginning of the next, we're going to play it. And I would just ask that as you think about who you are, and think about your own struggles, and how you even identify yourselves, even imagine looking in a mirror and thinking you'd have to answer the question, who, who am I really? I would just hope that somehow this creative way that we've tried to approach this would, would again fill you up in such a way that you would see that truth. So let's, let's go ahead and play that now. Who am I? This question has no simple answer. It has a nuance, a history, a journey, and often a standstill. We pause, we question, we wrestle, we dwell. Crippled by a lack of direction, is it just based on my future destination? Do I decide? If not, then who will? The weight of who I could be, who should be, who I want to be. Voices outside and inside create duplicity in the innermost parts of me. Who am I reminds me of people to blame. 
unearthing the deep, unexamined places of shame. Confused and convoluted with who will call time out in this crazy game. Then there's my reputation. Attempts to create alternative realities, constantly wearing masks that hide mass casualties, hiding who I am under tight-lipped, hushed-hushed formalities, in hopes of surface reconciliation, longing to present a flawless reputation, but caving under the pressure of minimal introspection. Beginning to look inside and seeing the trauma and the unaddressed hurts, certainly not the picturesque portrait we craft for onlookers, and definitely not the real me. Painstaking effort is taken to make sure the deepest cuts remain hidden. Pain so deep we stack them up like skeletons in a closet labeled forbidden. Tell me why we subject ourselves too frantically searching for everything. Some hope, some glimmer that we are more than the sum total of our frailties. My name, my name has meaning, has value, a story. My name has been written down so many times, mailed and addressed for such a time as this, addressed to me for some designed purpose. Do we even know its weight? We sign it on checks, scribble it on contracts, domesticated by volume, engraved in locations few will ever read, eventually carved on a stone for all who care to see. Yet feeling perpetually incomplete, never quite enough to really be seen, fractured, limited, restricted, tossed around near and far, does our name encompass who we truly are? Our names uttered when attendance is called, we hear our names spoken, many know we are present, but little about just how broken. My name carries meaning for those who know it. For some only know parts of me, mask behind what I only want to be seen. My name invokes emotion, reactions, both good and bad, simultaneously. But do those who speak it know me, or only who they want me to be? I'm neither a faceless name nor a nameless face, but neither do I feel fully known. I am blind, and even I don't know the real me. A mere shadow, a glimpse, a me for only an audience to see. I wear a mask, painted on my fleeting reputation. Fragile, delicate, requiring exhaustive reapplication. With various connotations drawn from my own distorted reflections, the view of my heart is clouded, foggy, dimmed by my own apprehensions. There's one place my name appears, despite my confused perceptions. A place that its inscription is immune from opinionated fluctuations. The writer is my author, my designer, my life giver. I'm fully known and accepted into the beloved. I'm listed amongst his children, protected from flawed misconceptions. The inscription on this particular publication is the very mark of my salvation. The Lamb's Book of Life bears my name, not because of anything I've done, nor has it been erased because of some fatal flaw, 
The Lamb's Book of Life bears my name because my life bears someone else's. I am His, and He is mine. So my identity is not rooted in my self-generated self-sufficiency or some misplaced passion for self-autonomy. I am not left alone to manufacture some possible destiny. I have been given a name imputed with purpose and meaning, set forth before the foundations of the world by the design of the triune deity. Etched on the pages of this divine publication is not merely letters spelling out my eternal destination. The writer knows me and my every supplication, and yet alone grants me my real identification. His child is stamped on my heart. That's who I am, and all I'll never need to be. Engraved on my heart is his name and what he says of me. He defines my value, my purpose, my identity. I am his and he is mine has been spoken over me. I am adopted, chosen, accepted, his workmanship, sovereignly selected.